0: Love, talk,
1: radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Suttles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. We have, um, <clears throat> over the years, we have talked a fair bit about uh, the Utopia Project in Utah. And this is a project that involves um, uh, 11 cities and towns that have banded together to uh, create a regional network. And as community networks go, this has probably become one of the flashpoints in some respects because telcos aren't particularly happy with, uh, with these community projects. But nevertheless, um, The the, the project in in Utah has done well. It has done well uh, in large part because it has been, uh, I would say, refocused since its initial start. Um, They've brought good people on board to to make the project work. They have done excellent marketing, and they provide good customer service, all of these being uh, hallmarks to a successful network. Uh, One of the things I wanted to talk about today and focus on with uh, Utopia is is how they have uh, been successful at getting the community literally to buy into the project, in essence paying uh, cash. To, to have part of the, net, or the network run to their premises. And I think this is a model that other cities can uh, replicate. And so we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how this all works. Joining me today is uh, Roger Timmerman, who is the chief technology officer for the Utopia Project. And he's been involved for the past five years. So clearly he has uh, lots of insight and firsthand experience on on how this network has been uh, been successful. Roger, welcome to the show.
0: Uh thanks Greg, it's a pleasure to be on here. Thank you for inviting me to to talk about our project. It's something we're pretty passionate about, excited about, so uh happy to be on here.
1: Excellent. Well, let's jump right into it. So the um, there are many aspects of the, of the project um, that that are fascinating, and in fact we've talked about it on the show uh, about, about a year ago. But I want to hone in on this process of getting the subscribers to, in essence, you know, get full-on skin in the game by uh, paying to have the infrastructure run the last uh, few feet to their actual premises. How is this? Um, structured, how effectively has it worked?
0: Well, let me give you maybe a comparison a little bit of of what we had done before that and why this was was better uh because before that we had just kind of built the network and and hoped it would be successful you know so we're a little bit different than you typically see in a in a project in that we don't we're not your isp we're not your phone provider you know we're we're the, the city you know, agency that, that builds the network and makes it available to other companies that then come in and act as your ISP and your, your video provider and whatnot. So our marketing efforts were pretty much non-existent. We would build this network and make it available and basically notify these other companies, well, now you can go into these neighborhoods and, and kind of fight to get you those customers, right? And, and there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of success with that. Um you know, they, some names were recognizable and some weren't, and people didn't really differentiate that from just another cable company. They didn't see it as a community network or, or, or that aspect of it. So our, our subscription rates were were fairly poor. Uh, you know, maybe that's generous. <laughs> <You> know, it, <laughs> in some areas, it was still decent, but overall, I think we'd say that it just wasn't where they had anticipated in the feasibility studies. Um, and then we also had some service providers that failed uh, as a company. And so when that happens, people would associate that with uh, our project, and, and then they would switch back to an incumbent uh, provider thinking that they didn't have any other options. They didn't know that that fiber to their house could be used by other companies to, to continue the services. So so that's where we were before. and. And, and, you know, several years ago, you know, the Utopia restructured, and we went into a new city that was uh, Brigham City up in the north part of Utah. And the approach there was very different. There wasn't, you know, we really needed to have a good enough take rate to justify uh, building it. And there wasn't funding to just pay for it and hope we got subscribers. So that's where the, the city said, well, how about we treat this more, like a like a utility but not a utility that was imposed on everyone in the city but an optional thing so that people could you know if they wanted it to their house they could sign up and if they didn't they didn't have to but the city would would facilitate it for those who signed up but the cost of the network would be paid for by entirely by those customers Uh um well that would only work if there was a certain take rate um and so we said, well, we're not going to build this unless we get the take rate first. So there was a campaign to go out through the city and get people to commit to either pay the cost of the network for their home up front uh, or to finance it through the city through uh, – it was a special assessment area of, you know, fee that they would, would put in over 20 years. And, and they had that option. We expected most people just to pick the city-funded model their financed model, Um, and and most of them did, but we actually had a pretty high percentage that just would pay for the connection up front and say, well, I'll I'll benefit from owning my own connection and and have lower fees for forever as a result of that. Um, And so we we have a mix, and and we were able to achieve the take rates needed to fund the whole project, and and it was built out, and now Brigham City is one of the most connected cities in the country. Uh and even though it's it's a fairly rural city, uh, you know, they have better connectivity than they do in downtown Salt Lake City, for example. Uh and, and anywhere in that city they can people can order a gigabit to their home. Uh so it's a pretty amazing thing that they've been able to, to achieve there, uh mm-hmm. through Utopia. And then we've taken that model and we we went uh also to another city uh since then which was Centerville, Utah, and did the same sort of thing and were able to get Uh, good take rates, Um, but it was a little different there in that they we allowed a a lease option that that only gave, you know, people would, instead of committing to 20 years of payments or pay up front, uh, they had those options available to them, but they could pay a little bit higher monthly rate and just lease the connection and the city would own it, Um, and and that fee would never go away as long as they were leasing, but they could at any moment say, well, I'll I'll pay the, the, the higher amount up front or sign up for a long-term commitment and pay it off. You know, the upside of that being that that fee, you know, to, to to pay for that network, if it's paid off, you never have to worry about it again. So so some people like that, and some people, you know, think they might be living at their home only for, you know, the next year or so, and the, and the shorter-term option, even though it's a little more expensive, is a little more appealing.
1: Mm-hmm. So all of these were fairly radical concepts, weren't they? I mean, as as broadband networks and their development and so forth goes, I mean, are there any organizations, either uh, public-owned or private-owned, where the owner, the business owner or the homeowner, has the option to actually own the part of the infrastructure or own the infrastructure that comes to their doorstep?
0: Um, no, we really aren't aware of any other projects that do it that way. Um, it doesn't really work for say, like an incumbent network where you don't have any option, you know, you, mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to pay for a connection with a cable company and then say, well, a year or two down the road, you don't like their services, well, you're committed for 20 years, that, that doesn't seem like it would make sense. But where the, the, the ownership can be to an open access system like Utopia, if you decide you're not happy with your ISP or phone provider, well, you're not locked to that company, you can switch them. because we basically separated the infrastructure from the services you receive over that infrastructure so it's okay to commit to long term for the infrastructure cuz you're always going to have a need for some internet provider but you may not you don't want to be locked into one specific company if their if their prices become less competitive or their customer service deteriorates or for whatever reason you, d- you decide you don't like that company uh, you know, our our customers can just say, "Well, I'm done with them, and I'll pick a different company and and and, and get a better level of service."
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I think that uh, in the U.S., when you get into policy discussions and going into the back and forth about uh, what should be our broadband strategy overall, I think there is a uh, a strong feeling that we need to separate infrastructure from services, and why we are in a sad state in terms of broadband and quality of broadband is because the two are combined and we get into really negative situations dealing with incumbents because they own both. Um, do you feel that, you know, one, first and foremost, should we be separating the the infrastructure from services discussions and strategy plans? and And how likely do you think that is to take root as a, you know, way to move forward? Yeah,
0: I you, you've nailed it right on the head. Uh, the the incumbents and the cable companies are doing everything they can to to keep you locked into their service by using the infrastructure, and they should be separated apart. Um, you, you know, the the companies like Comcast, you see them doing their acquisitions with NBC Universal to try to get a hold of the content, so that that those companies who own content don't try to bypass the infrastructure providers that aren't keep staying competitive. Well if you can separate those from each other and say, well the infrastructure is there and over that infrastructure anybody can deliver their content to you, now you just change the game and, and, and you start creating the cable cutters who say, well, you know, to heck with these cable companies and their their vertically integrated product, I'm going to start buying Netflix and I'm going to start buying, you know, over the top, you know, phone and security <laughs> and automation products and things like that. And it's not they're not tied to the products offered by their cable company or their phone company. They get whatever product they want to over the top and just get the infrastructure from their municipality and their local internet providers.
1: Mhm now, in terms of um, bringing it back to your initial effort when you when you initiated this uh process, one, what was the risk involved in coming out with this very different uh, approach <clears throat> and what do you think was the thing that led to that approach being successful
0: well the the risk was to go out and and not get the take rate it was needed right to go into a community and say well in order to make this happen you ha- you know we have to cover this infrastructure cost and you have to buy your own connection essentially and had we not gotten to an adequate take rate you know, the risk would have been the expense and time. You know, to go out and and do the the marketing campaign and the feasibilities and all of that. You know, you'd be out of pocket. You know, if a city were to do that, they'd be out of pocket at the expense of doing that. Um, but beyond that, there was actually not a lot of risk because, you know, typically you build these networks and you're at risk of all the infrastructure you put. But but this model actually mitigates that risk by assessing the demand first and knowing for sure that you. You have enough commitment from customers to achieve the cost of your system, and mm-hmm. so with Brigham City, where the really only, only option to s- connect there was to cover the entire connection of the to your home, uh, the city really wasn't risking anything. They said, "Well, if if we get the commitments, we're good, and if we don't get the commitments, we don't move forward." Mm-hmm. Um, so, so for those cities that are you know worried about that exposure—it's a really good model. Now, since then, we said, well, if we can actually push the take rates up a little bit higher with a lease option thrown into the mix, you know, that does expose the cities to some risk because if a customer were to sign up for for you know a, a shorter period of time on a lease and then disconnect, you know, then the city's on the hook for having spent more money than they've returned, you know, recovered on that that customer. Um, but, you know, as we did a lot of analysis of, of take rates and of people who leave the network, you know, our churn rates and things like that, we basically said, well, you know, if we charge a little bit more money for those these customers, it'll, it'll make up the difference and, and allow us to, to be more successful having that option in there. So we didn't go exclusively to that option because the, the, the ownership model still makes a lot of sense for people. But to have both in parallel uh, just made everything work a little bit better.
1: Mm-hmm. So you've, um, you've you've thought this uh, you've thought this out fairly well. Who was the driving force? I mean, from like in terms of position, whether it was I don't know, finance manager or outside consultant, but who drove the financial analysis part of this discussion?
0: Boy, that's a that's a good question. I mean, we had there was a a lot of us, you know, in a lot of meetings over a long period of time, you know, trying to nail down. What the expenses would be and how this would all come together. Um, Todd Marriott, our, our executive director, is probably a leading force in, in making that all come together. Um, but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't easy. I mean, obviously there was coordination with the city and how things would be structured and, and how it was bonded and funded and all that. I mean, there's there's a lot of people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you were to put someone in front of that, it, it'd, it'd probably be Todd Marriott.
1: Okay. So, in, in some respects, it takes uh, it takes someone who's part visionary, but also, I would imagine, um, having a good, I guess, ability to master the numbers. You know, I look at smaller cities, you know, and one of the questions that comes up is, well, you know, great, this group or this company did X or Y. How do we do it? We're not as big. We don't have the same kinds of resources and so forth. So, it kind of helps to understand that uh you know w- w- what kinds of folks need to be brought to the table uh and I would say in utopia's situation um the value for the value that it seems that, that Todd brought was the willingness to uh, tear down the existing <clears throat> structure, challenge all the assumptions that got to that point and and rework it from from the ground up with a new perspective uh is that a fair you know summation of how this kind of came together
0: um yeah i think it is it's that is a very difficult task you know what what is the network going to cost you know that that is the question of the day right um because we, we go to city to city and the costs are significantly different between them you know based on the amount of overhead construction versus underground And what's the the makeup of the, you know, the soil? You know, we have, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of rock in the ground where we build. So our underground construction costs are far higher than they are in in most cities. And so we have to, you know, go into a, a project like we did in Brigham City and say, well, without, you know, actually building the thing, we have to get our best guess as to what this will cost as it gets built out uh, knowing what rates we have from co- different contractors and what materials cost and all that, and, and you know, we started at a 50,000 foot level and had to drill down very, very deep uh, to know what things would would end up costing us. And then at some point, you risk it, uh, you know, believing that your assumptions are accurate. And we did hit the mark with that with that project, and, and since then, we've been you know fin- finishing our projects uh, at the budgets that we've expected. Mm-hmm. And that's been very helpful. Uh, the original Utopia project did not. You know, they when they started it, uh, the first round of of construction and things, they they had a lot of cost overruns, and and, and the project was outsourced uh, completely to third party entities. And that was a lot. What happened back when they brought Todd Marriott in and restructured the project is that we brought in a lot of in house uh, expertise. Um, both on the network engineering and technical side, as well as the outside plant construction and engineering, and that's really enabled Utopia to get more accurate and honest with uh, the information that it's that uses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a resource that Utopia is. You know, we're not a we're still not a private entity. We're we're public. We're owned by our cities. You know, but it's a resource that we have available, and we we constantly reach out to other projects that are out there in these. In their early stages, to see how we can take the assumptions and results of what our projects have found, and and how those can help their projects to get, you know, more accurate information. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. So it is a, um, you know, a combination, obviously, of good needs assessment, uh, coupled with extremely good financial um, analysis, is being a, you know. a part of bringing all this together one of the things that someone else uh, on the show last year brought up was there's value in building certain types of capabilities in-house or within the the, the, the the community as opposed to going relying on consultants all the time I think one of those areas you know you, you've, you've touched on this a little bit but um You know, if you were talking to a group of colleagues, which actually you are on the show, um, what do you have to say about the value and virtue of of creating a lot of the skill set of network management in-house versus having it contracted out?
0: Well, that's a tough one. I mean, we've we've been both. Um, You know, we've had it where all the expertise was out outsourced and that ended up being a real problem for our project uh, other projects that's been a, a, a real strength to those projects so it it probably depends more upon the the integrity and you know and the uh, skill set of those that you deal with you know if you have a very good contractor we have some contractors now that are phenomenal and you know we feel that we get far better value out of them than we would in sourcing, you know, on the, in the construction side of things. However, we also feel that many of our, much of our in-house expertise is, you know, worth their weight in gold um, because of what they're able to accomplish for us versus going out to an external consultant. So it, that's a tough one. I can't say that one model is better than the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, if you have good people, you'll get good results whether they're in or outside of your organization.
1: Mhm. So it's, it's it's kind of what I would say a trial and error that you have to to figure out what that balance is, which skills you want to have in-house, which skills you want to have contracted out.
0: Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, I we could look at parts of our organization and say, yeah, we we could definitely do these outside whereas we're doing them inside and and vice versa. Um but uh yeah, it's it's trial and error a, a lot you know if you feel like you're not getting your your value out of a contractor you know you certainly would want to go back out to bid or you know we, we're as a government agency we have to go out on RFP process and that's a pretty good way to to weed out you know your better better companies um, by scoring them and 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 doing a fair fair evaluation of them um, but if you don't have someone on the inside to know how to write your RFP and score those respondents very well, then then you may not make the right decisions.
1: Mm -hmm. So it's a uh, perpetual balancing act.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we really, really push our vendors. (laughs) You know, we, just as an example on our electronics, I mean, we we have very, very good pricing, you know, very good equipment. We've done a lot of upgrades to our system and, and feel that it's, Top notch but it's not exactly what they would have wanted to sell us you know they would have wanted to sell us things at a higher price and different equipment but we had enough in-house expertise to to decide what we needed for ourselves more than what a vendor would want to sell to us Mm -hmm. Um, so having that amount of expertise in-house to make good decisions is important but we're not necessarily doing all of the the lower level you know, construction and, and, and labor.
1: hmm Now, <clears throat> I'm gonna circle back here a little bit. Coming back to the um if we look at you know where we've covered so far in the show, you know, having a, a deep understanding of the needs is, is one key. Um <clears throat> understanding the cost is another. Finding the balance between, you know, what talent is is developed, is homegrown versus which talent is um, uh, outsourced what about the the actual marketing message um, and I bring this one this point or this question up because right now we're at a point where lots of the broadband projects that were funded by the broadband stimulus are being completed, you know their 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 time is like they've got to be finished by this year and so forth. And I think now, or maybe for some folks only now, people are going to realize that they need marketing, right? Because no one really talked about marketing, and you're going to need the skill set uh, when everybody was chasing after money and all these projects were getting started. But you know, from your perspective, having gone through the ringer um what was the marketing message especially considering you were again introducing a new concept for how to pay for these networks how did you market that
0: well it was a a huge component of the of, of what we do is is how we market that and it's very very important that people feel that it's a community network um that that was one of the the initial issues is they didn't even understand it was the city network underneath the service providers they're dealing with, and so as as consumers are, or you know I say consumers as as the residents of our communities are approached by someone who is representing Utopia, you know that that representative isn't there to represent an ISP or a phone company. They're there to represent their city and their project. So so they come in and say, hey, we we have this community network, and I'm not here to to sell you something. I'm just here to make you aware of what your options are. And here are all your different options. You can pick from these Internet service providers. You can pick from these video providers, phone providers, security, whatever else. And they can be more of an advocate for, you know, the the network and what it offers versus a a sales pitch. And that Mm -hmm. really has made it very, very successful relative to just, the typical sales pitch that you might hear from a, an ISP. So so that you know every any community considering a network like this they really need to have a strong community aspect to how they market this um because that's what it is. You know mm-hmm. And that's where the need is i mean if if the cities aren't getting into this because they want to be in the telecommunications industry they're getting into this because their communities don't have the community you know network and the connectivity that they want um and so the the municipality steps into it, and people need to understand that it is their community
1: mhm, so now let's talk about the um the competitive environment, so you basically have you basically have launched this network. you have marketed it uh, successfully what 's the competitive environment like um, and, and maybe your experience is more dramatic or more drastic than than other communities might be but then again, maybe not but but what 's been your experience? What has been hurled at you from a marketing perspective and you know and and has you know how has the strength of the community first message uh, enabled you to weather the storm.
0: Well, you know, I, I'd say that one of the the driving factors for pe- why people want our connection so much may not be because it's so great. I believe it is, but it's because of how bad the other guys are. <laughs> now, there's there's no shortage of of uh, discontent for the incumbent cable company and and uh, phone company in our area. Uh, we have Comcast and CenturyLink are the two, you know, incumbents, uh, you know, and, and uh, they have their duopoly situation, and people just don't like that, and they don't like the services they can get from them. Uh, they're notorious for their, you know, issues with customer service and reliability, and you know, just the current state of those two providers in our state drives a lot of people to us. Um, so that's helpful. Um, now they don't just sit idly by, I mean, we, we do see them market quite a bit more. I mean, they're, we don't have, we're not statewide. I mean, we're, we're individual municipalities within the state. So you don't see statewide marketing campaigns like they do. They'll, they'll be on the radios, you know, commercials, they have billboards. I mean, they're onto everything. You know, they, they have a far greater budget for that sort of thing. Uh, than than a muni- any municipal network would have and we also see their efforts focused on our cities more than we do in our non-cities and mm-hmm. that's very frustrating both for our cities and for our non-cities because you know the, the those that aren't members of our cities say well how come the price is better in that other city right next to us and it's because there's the competitive influence of utopia there mm-hmm. um, and then we look at it and say well we're a little frustrated because that's a little unfair, you know, we're, why, why are they subsidizing a lower price in our cities and making the other cities pay higher? Uh, and it's just because of the competitive pressures. I mean, they're free to do that, but it, it is, um, I don't know, it's it's a little bit nasty to, to, to operate that way.
1: <laughs> right. Well, you, so know, my, yeah. you know,
0: even, well, it's an interesting situation because even the Comcast customers in our cities benefit because we're there, because their prices are lower than they would be Elsewhere and utah experiences some of the best and lowest you know prices for internet in the country uh, Because of our influence in in several of the cities in utah and we're very proud of that You know we we wish it were that they just all joined our network, and we had higher take rates. That would be a better situation Um, (laughs) You know, but uh, it's still a good thing whether or not you're actually our customer you know it it Mm -hmm. benefits the Mm -hmm. community as a whole
1: very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Let's talk a little bit about the um the makeup of Utopia. You have um what I'll call, you know, active partners and then you have others who are partners technically but not quite fully engaged. Um I understand this a little bit, but why don't you just explain to the audience what you've got going on and uh and, and we'll just go from there. Yeah,
0: so Utopia, I mean, it had to be created before it did anything, and so they created the legal entity, which is a, the legal structure is a, a subdivision of the state of Utah, an interlocal agency, and, and it was created by 16 cities, and they all basically said, yeah, we're members and we, we sit on the board um, and, and participate in this project. And then once they had that established, they, they said, okay, now let's figure out what we're going to build and what it's going to cost and do our feasibility and all of that. When it came down to actually moving forward with the bonding and the funding and the build of the project, uh, there were 11 cities that, that bonded and, and put up sales tax revenues to back those bonds to build the project. So Utopia does have 16 cities that are involved um, but the level of involvement is obviously larger for those, net, those cities that have moved forward with the funding and having the network built in their cities. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're at today. Um, we do allow for additional cities to, to join. Uh, we, we haven't had cities join uh, other than that they you know, basically say, well, yeah, we would like you to offer services in our city, and we're desperate for it, but uh, they haven't come in under the umbrella of Utopia. You know, when we have we've built our network to interconnect a bunch of cities, and so there's obviously a lot of space in between those cities where our network exists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's a statewide network in that sense, and and a lot of cities that aren't members of Utopia benefit from Utopia being in their cities. Mm-hmm.
1: So now, do you see um, a lot of this interest turning into full-fledged membership? And then are you going to be able to – well, maybe I actually should back this up for a second. So there is a build-out phase that happens. Um, is the deal that someone a community becomes a partner and then you start building based on, you know, pre-selling subscriptions and so forth? I mean, how does that transition work exactly?
0: Well, it's basically a city would need to come to the table and say, we want a project, you know, built in our city. And because we weren't part of your previous funding, um, they would probably come up with their own funding and you know, do their own bond for their own project, in their own city, and use Utopia as the facilitator. And, you know, that could happen with cities in U- Utah. It could potentially happen to, to other cities just to say, well, hey, there's some resource that Utopia has that may be able to help us with our own project. And whether it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be owned by Utopia, it it could be a city doing its own project and just having Utopia be, you know, that operator or you know, contracted manager of the network to help them along with their project. And you know, like I said, we're we're not a private entity; we're public, and our interests are just to for the betterment of of the communities that, that we serve. And to have other communities, we can help. We're we're happy to help where we can.
1: hmm So you're saying there's a there's an opportunity to. Uh, start an independent project and, and then be connected to the Utopia project or rely on Utopia for uh, services to help them get up and running.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just as an example, I mean, there are other cities in Utah that have their own projects that are not part of Utopia, such mm-hmm. as like Spanish Fork and the Provo uh, Network and the American Fork Network. They, they they all did different types of networks. Um that are municipal projects. Uh, the Spanish Fork network they connect to us. That's how they get their connectivity to the you know the rest of the world. Um, and so we benefit them even though they're not a member of our project. And the same thing, you know, we've we've worked with American Fork City and provided connectivity there. We've worked with Provo City uh, for their project uh, to help them with that. And we were, you know, helping them with their provider that was in their Veracity Networks and their provider on our network. And so there's there's a lot of synergies between us in other cities um whether or not they're actually a official member of the project. Mhm.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Now, do you have um the issue that other regional network projects have of getting everybody on the same page? I mean, if you look at a lot of states in Maryland and Michigan and uh, and so forth, there are projects involving multiple jurisdictions. And one of the I don't know, joys or burdens of having multiple jurisdictions is yes, they all get helped by the network, but they are still separate political entities and they're separate operating entities and all of that. How much do you have to get them on the same page, and how do you go about doing that?
0: <laughs> that is a that is a fun obstacle that we. we uh, <laughs> It takes a lot more resource than we'd like it to, um, because we, you know, I had come previously. I had worked with the Provo City project, and that one, they, you know, they had one mayor and one city council that would had to, they had to coordinate that project with. And at Utopia, we have that times, you know, eleven as far as the pledging members and sixteen total that we have to coordinate, you know, our efforts with, and so. When we go for a new round of bonding, instead of just one vote in one city council meeting, it's a vote in 11 city council meetings or, or however many that, that are participating in that round that we have to get those votes from. Um, you know, we do benefit from some very good elected officials in our member cities um, that are that are supportive of the project. Um, you know, Utopia hasn't done everything. You know, as far as uh, hitting the the objectives that it originally set out but our recent history has been very good. We've been continuing to hit our goals recently and improving our situation, and those elected officials that sit down with us uh, and, and learn about what the progress we've made have been extremely supportive. And uh, so, you know, as we juggle that, we say, well, there are some elected officials that get involved and understand the project and are supportive, and then there's others that, that don't work with us. Uh, and don't desire to and it can be it can be difficult um, mm-hmm. to juggle different opinions and influences among all those different city councils and all those different mayors and we also get to watch things sw- swing one direction to the other when there's a, an election <laughs> so ah, every, yeah. <laughs> we never know what is going to come you know result out of a, a new election and who you know what opinions the new leadership may have in that city mm-hmm. so it's it's definitely an obstacle to, to larger projects like that to deal with so many different jurisdictions, and and basically it just changes the focus a little bit of the project as the the politics change. Um, mm-hmm. But fortunately, overall, everyone is you know we're we're progressing and making progress financially as well as expanding the network, uh, and and they can see that, and and we get pretty good support from our cities.
1: Mhm now, before uh the show started when we you and I were chatting, you know we talked a little bit about you know the regional aspect of this, and um, I am starting to hear in other communities uh a greater interest in regional efforts that you have you know to date you've had the pioneering cities you know Chattanooga uh you know Kansas City in California near me you know there's the San Leandro project so you have these successful gigabit networks that have formed uh and moved forward in in different cities but there's there's an increasing sentiment i think for regional networks um is that what you're seeing when you talk to other folks or go to conferences and whatnot uh you know, is, is there a greater interest in the regional approach to broadband, community broadband?
0: Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, there's, with any project like this, you're going to have a, a certain number of fixed costs to keep, you know, to keep it going and to run it, um, and, and it scales as you grow that, right? And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we have a network operations center, for example, and they they are here 24-7 to make sure that our network is up and reliable and that we dispatch technicians to do repair work as needed and all of that. And it wouldn't make sense for each of our cities to have their own network operations center for their own city. Um, You know, they're all in the same area regionally. The same technicians can respond to to issues in different cities. You know, the same equipment and trucks and whatever can all be utilized by all of these different projects. And so to, to make it one larger regional project, uh with many many participating projects within that larger regional project absolutely makes sense.
1: Mhm. Now do you provide a, a like a standard um I don't know cost assessment that when communities contact you and say hey we want to be a part of Utopia. What's really the benefit, you know, of doing that? Do you have a, you know, sort of a handy-dandy PowerPoint or something that says, you know, this is what will it would cost you in, you know, operation costs overall, you know, dollars and cents if you did it by yourself versus if you worked with a, you know, with us in the regional effort. This is what it would cost you.
0: Um, yes and no. As far as building the project and making it you know, make it come up, you know, to be built and offer services, that initial cost is very different city to city. So that component of it, it really has to be done on a case-by-case basis. However, once a system is built and in place, for Utopia to go in and say, well, we can integrate that in, uh, we do have, you know, our standard costs that apply to all of our cities and that could be integrated in with our, our standard costs, and that way, You know, it helps from a marketing perspective. You're not selling something different in every city. It's just all these cities are utopia. They all have the same expenses, you know, associated with them, and the same service provider offerings uh, are out there as well. And it it didn't always used to be that case with utopia. You know, there was a time in our past where we said, well, in this city it costs a little bit more, and over in this city it costs a little bit less, and, and that was a very difficult situation to deal with. Even though Utopia was operating all those, that segmentation was a, I mean, it, it was terrible to deal with that. So Utopia standardized that across all of its cities. It's all the same price, even though our actual expenses vary a little bit city to city. Um, and as a city came in, they could just come in under the same terms as everyone else, under the same cost
1: structure. Mm-hmm. Is there a um, political benefit to being part of a regional effort?
0: Um, you know, there's pros and cons, right? I mean, you know, you see that, you know, Provo has definitely gone a different way with their network. Um, Some people would argue to, you know, huge benefit and others would argue to to detriment. And so, you know, has it been good for them to be able to do their own thing? Well, it has given them the freedom to to change, right? They could say, well, we're we're going to sell our system and do this deal with Google Fiber, um, whereas you know, utopia is this big collaborative effort among cities, uh that isn't you know, you can't do the same sort of thing that, that you know, the cities are obligated to each other, uh, to, to move forward with this project, uh, whereas Provo was separate. So so that was you know, depending on who you ask at Provo, that's a good or a bad thing. Um but there definitely is a lot of collaboration between these cities that, that goes to their benefit. I mean, we have cities that, that, you know, they share police departments, and they share, you know, all sorts of different resources between those cities. Some of them use other sites for their off-site backups. And so we have one city putting their equipment in another city, and they, they all use our network to, to help each other. Um, whereas if you're running your own island network, uh, you wouldn't get those benefits. Mm-hmm. Well, so there's definitely pros and cons. Mm-hmm.
1: So now, in in obviously not everybody jumps on board. What is some of the reluctance by some of the cities to joining up with uh, a project like Utopia?
0: Well, number one is it's financial. Um, you know, the the economy ten years ago was very different than it is today. Um, and so today it's very difficult to convince, you know, a city that it's worth, you know, bonding for and risking and, and, and building out this network. Um, it was easier uh, 10 years ago. However, we're seeing a swing in the other direction. The, the, the interest out there is, you know, it was probably at a low about three years ago. Um, but now with the pressures of increased demand for Internet service and then you have things out there like Google Fiber and they're, you know, they went out there and they got 1,100 cities to say, we want it, we want it, we want it. And, you know, right now they've got one with two announced. Right? You know, the, I mean, there's only one of them that it actually has any customers so far. And so, and just, you know, a couple of their neighborhoods. And so now you, what, what happens to the other 11, well, 1,098 cities or whatever, you know, they, they all have a, a desire for it. Well, what are they going to do about it? I mean, there are options to them. You know, in Utopias, we have these models that we share and, and happy to facilitate with that. Some of them will go on their own. Some of them will do regional efforts. Um, but I think you're going to see a, a huge upswing over the next several years in those, those cities that, that take off and start doing their own projects. I mean, Google isn't going to happen fast enough to meet their demands, even if that was an option to them, Mm -hmm. Um, and so are they going to just kind of deal with it, or are they going to take action? And I think you'll see them starting to take action on that. Right, okay, that that
1: makes a lot of sense. Um, Now Uh, let's talk a little bit about getting these um, service providers on board. There is a body of folk in this industry who say that uh, ISPs will not participate on open access networks. Then you have some of the rest of the folks, like myself, who will say, you know, if you market it correctly, if you show that there is a demand and you present a path for, uh, from involvement to profitability for ISPs, ISPs are business people who will take that as a business opportunity and jump on it. Um, You guys, obviously, you have 15 providers uh, involved. Um, Is the the theory of those of us who say, you know, it's all in the business case and you can get folks to overcome their reluctance, or what is it that has has made it, you know, that Utopia is successful in this area?
0: Yeah, I, I think the the list of the fifteen providers is proof that open access does work. I mean, these these companies are are successful. Um, they're they're happy. They're supportive of the network. Um, you know, it, it is possible. Now, was it easy to just you know have fifteen providers? I mean, no, it wasn't. You know, Utopia started out and had one provider, and it was AT and T, and then they they decided to mothball that project because they had all these other acquisitions and and things that were going on at the time. And Utopia didn't have a provider, and they were scrambling, and they ended up with two. And those two providers were not really adequate for the market, and Utopia struggled. Um, But as Utopia grew and, and started soliciting, you know, other providers to come on the network, and they improved reliability they improved their interfaces and communication with service providers, you know, basically m- made the the network more attractive uh for ISPs. Then we started, you know, now we're we have too many wanting to be on the network. I mean, that's really our current obstacle is, is you know, how do we how do we manage so many providers uh because so many want to participate. Um You know, we want everyone who can participate to be on the network is our desire, and and that's, you know, the direction we've gone. But it it, it takes a lot of work. I mean, we have, you know, a service provider comes in and they connect to Utopia, and, you know, they can actually get live information of all their different customers. Uh, They can check the device in their house and get live information as to, you know, whether that customer is up and what's connected to the device in their house, how it's configured. I do a lot of troubleshooting as if it's their own network. And, and you know, things like that are, are key to making it attractive to service providers so they don't feel like they're subject to someone else's network. You know, they get to operate on Utopia as if it's their own system. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been very important to them. And so we've gone from the two little providers we had before to now, you know, some larger, you know, both, both Utah and non-Utah companies. We have... Uh, you know for example windstream is a national telecommunications company that's on our network as a service provider and uh you know it's not easy to attract large companies like that we have integra that's regional uh, we have some you know a lot of very successful utah uh ISPs like X-Mission and veracity and and infowest and and, and several others i you know I, I feel bad to not mention all other names but you know they're they're all very good partners and and supportive of of us because you know, we can give them something that's very attractive to them and make them successful. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: which is definitely a uh, definitely a plus. Now, I know one of the concerns about ISPs, uh, especially the larger ones, with being on an open access network, is they worry about the reliability of the community being able to and that's keep the keep the infrastructure up and running. Because they know that if they sold a customer uh, service and the owner of the infrastructure that the ISP does not own, uh, you know, has problems, then all that's going to back up on them and become a problem for the ISP. How do you um, convince the, the larger ISPs that you guys are real and that all the, you know, the negative press that you get from time to time, you know, undeserved negative press is just that undeserved I mean how do you get past that hurdle
0: yeah it it is not an easy thing it's just like you say there is a lot of negative press out there that we feel is undeserved and we have to go to them and say look you know quit quit reading the newspaper articles except for these ones that are good (laughs) (laughs) but 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 anyways we have to go to them and say well well, look, numbers, numbers speak from themselves, and we can show detailed information and in historical reports about the performance of our network, the reliability, and these things were not always the case. In Utopia's earlier days, it was notorious for having outages and packet loss and, and, and you know, all sorts of different issues, and, and we've really had to do a lot of work to get it up to be a, a five nines reliable network. Uh, we have very stringent, SLAs, uh, your service level agreements with our providers to say, you know, if there's going to be an outage or if there is an outage or fiber cut or whatever, we will immediately dispatch and fix it within a certain amount of time um, that the performance of packets passing across the network is going to, to meet their requirements. And and that, you know, none of that was really there initially. And so we've had to, to bring it up to the level of a carrier class network in order to mm-hmm. attract those, those service providers. And so, you know, five years ago, it would have been just out of the question to get national carriers and even be providing for wireless backhaul for cellular providers to their towers. You know, they're very, very stringent on their requirements for those, but we've had to, to step up our game and uh, and deliver. And those, you know, our focus is obviously, you know, to do businesses and residents in our in our communities you know but any opportunity to provide wireless backhaul or transport across the, the state or or anything like that we, you know we we go after those as well and and have found a lot of success there.
1: Mhm. So all in all um as with everything else related to community broadband you have to roll up your sleeves and you have to you have to get it done. And uh nothing succeeds like success as far as expanding that that particular effort. Um, and speaking of expanding that that effort, what does or what do the next 12 to 18 months hold for Utopia in your estimation?
0: Well, it's an exciting time for Utopia. I mean, we just completed our, well, in the very, very last stages of a broadband stimulus project. Um, and what that's done is it's put Middle Mile, you know, throughout all of the areas of our cities, uh, where we didn't have any connectivity before, you know, we, we these anchor institutions that we connected as part of that were just spread throughout. So it's really provided us an an, an excellent launching point for our future, um, because now any business and any you know opportunity in any parts of our cities across the state are within you know spitting distance of our fiber network. Now, even though that broadband seamless project wouldn't fund the actual fiber to the home or anything like that. So so now our next year, you know, year and a half, two year plan is to take advantage of what has been built from the stimulus project and connect all the other businesses and things that are within reach of those those routes. Um so that's exciting. Uh you know, I guess that's probably the, the main
1: focus. hmm Does um does Utopia take uh any action to help ensure the success of the local uh, communities uh, part of the network, you know, beyond, you know, selling them a good service, providing, uh, you know, quality uptime and all of that. Okay, the the standard operational stuff that helps the network be successful. But do you go beyond that in some way to help those communities be successful?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of things we do uh, working with our member cities. Um, You know, they have different Varying levels of IT uh, staffs in their in their cities. So some cities, we actually do a lot of the work to support their their city networks, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, configuring servers and setting up servers, and and you know, providing wireless in their parks, and providing wire, you know, connectivity to their their electrical stations and their you know their I mean, they just—you know—cities have facility all over their cities that need to be connected. So we get very involved with them to provide that connectivity, uh, and that's a—that's a real benefit to them. Um, trying to think, what else we do? I mean, they—you know—it's we, we do function more or less as a department of the city, except that we do it for many cities. Mm-hmm. So to those cities, it, it's a big value that's hard to
1: quantify, um, mm-hmm. just because it's
0: there. You
1: know. Right. So it's definitely a, um, you know, if communities are going to create a similar kind of regional project and they, and, and whichever organization is the nucleus of that regional network, they should probably plan on providing more than just technical support. They need to be willing to get into the trenches, like literally and figuratively with the communities in order to help ensure their success. Yeah. Yeah, it's.
0: I mean, our relationships with the city is, is very close, and so, you know, we want the city to, to feel as if it is their project, you know, that this is there to do what they need in their city to connect their facilities, to benefit their, their own internal operations as well as their residents, and yet, you know, we're, we're a little more regional than that, and so it may seem like that's difficult, um, you know, but we've essentially assign different people to make sure that the cities' are, needs are met, that we're coordinating with them, and that there is that strong community benefit uh, to all of our communities, e- even though there we're that larger regional effort. Mm-hmm.
1: So in the all-in-all, all, your, uh, your future is so bright you're going to need shades. That's what you're telling us.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're – like I said, we're, it's an exciting time here. You know, we are in a growth mode, we're we're building a lot, we're getting a, a lot of benefit out of what's been put in the ground as a result of that stimulus project. Um, you know, it, it was kind of, you know, it wasn't stagnant, it was just slower moving over the last, you know, few years ago, mm-hmm. um, but the interest, like I said, overall uh, is increasing dramatically, um, both because of just average consumer demand for internet services, but also, you know, communities seeing with the different applications they can benefit from. You know, we see a lot more cities doing, you know, video surveillance, uh public safety applications, you know, the connectivity of their, their fire and their police and all of that has become more critical for them. Um and their and their residents are not just saying, Well, you're just another alternative to the, the incumbent, you know, uh Cable company and phone company. This is this is now critical infrastructure. I mean, this is you know, broadband in the past was was thought of as just some sort of benefit for the wealthy or the the tech savvy or whatever. But you know, that, that's taken a huge swing. It's now becoming a you know a, a necessity for everyone, and and not just you know, broadband as some people define it as five meg or less. I mean, we we like to look at the you know, the national broadband plan and things like that to say, hey, we want to have a hundred meg by twenty fifteen to everybody and we say, hey, well that's a that's a pretty good goal. Uh you know, we're doing gig right now, so you know, we're staying ahead of the game and that's where we want to be. Mm-hmm. Um and, and so it's it's an exciting time uh for us and our cities. Uh and we, we think the future's bright and uh you know, would anticipate a lot of growth uh both in our existing areas and other cities that take on these projects.
1: Excellent, excellent. Well, we are just about out of time. Uh, Roger, I want to thank you very, very much for coming in and giving us the scoop on Utopia, and and I hope that your insights and words are really inspiration for a lot of other communities out there, because I can say from having watched this industry for a number of years, you guys have come through the fire, and if you guys can do it and make this thing work, a lot of other communities can as well. So thanks again, Roger. I appreciate I appreciate your time.
0: And yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you.
1: And our guests, our audience out there today, thank you for uh, joining us uh, for yet a, another good show. Uh, be uh, be in touch. We are going to have a, a show that's going to focus a lot on looking at e-rate reform at the FCC level, and I think that's going to be a very valuable show to sh- uh, to to give people an idea of how some of these e-rate reforms can be worked into communities' broadband strategies. So um, continue to catch us and and listen to our shows. Tell all your friends. Catch the archive later for those who couldn't make it live. And and thank you once again, folks, for, for listening in to Gigabit Nation. Have a great day, and we'll talk again soon.